Welcome. Uh, this is Chance. I'm here with Brady. Uh, we're going to do a little uh, history literary podcast. Uh, don't have a name yet for our shtick. Uh, coming up with one. Uh, don't worry. Uh, um, let's see. Brady, you, you got anything? Um, well, did you like my other one? The one that we just already I mentioned earlier? Oh, yeah. yeah think yeah, that works. Apocalypsis Historian. Yeah. Talking about... Uh, the destruction of society, the destruction of history, the reconstruction of society, the reconstruction of history, the overturning of things, the changing of time, the changing of gauntlets, uh, the passing of thrones. Um, I think one of our main sort of themes that's going to be running through these episodes is going to be talking about control mechanisms in literature, in art. Um, we can talk about top-down control, whether it's state-mandated, uh, whether it's, you know, privately funded uh, group of elites. Uh, it doesn't even have to be that top-down. We can just be talking about individual uh, psychological control mechanisms. Um, at some point, this is going to get into a deep dive on none other than Shakespeare because um, ultimately we all here speak English and uh, English comes from a lot of different places and it forms over a long time but one of the things that sort of codifies and standardizes it and has become the sort of uh, standard or paradigm for the perfection of our language is Shakespeare and Renaissance English as a whole and so I think we're gonna be starting from there and moving outwards we will be constantly jumping to other stuff connecting it back to modern times whether modern times is 2022 or 1969 um, we'll talk about a lot of 19th century Gilded Age stuff because that's when big money, big industrialism really comes into play and uh, you'll be shocked at how much this does actually connect back to Shakespeare and that uh, the world's going to start to feel very small on one hand but um, it'll also spiral out of control on the other hand. There will be names on names on names that are all connected back to each other especially as we focus in on the Shakespeare era. You're going to see a lot of aristocratic people that we all kind of knew were important, but you didn't know how related and interrelated all these people were. And interesting. Yeah, and interesting. Um, whether or not these things are history, historiography, or fictions, a whole other discussion, and we will be getting into those as well, but at some point, uh, yeah, just get it tip your head at how interesting these people's biographies are and um, even if you're not a fan of Shakespeare or if you're not a fan of the Shakespeare authorship question um, I think you'll be surprised to find how interesting a lot of this discussion is uh, where do you want to start Brady? Yeah, I'm just going down this huge list of apparently words that Shakespeare invented. Um, and yeah, maybe that's, it also kind of, it's kind of hard to uh, think about, and we've mentioned, we've talked about this, you know, prior, but uh, we take for granted words and language that we use, right? Because it's kind of hard to think about at the time they're 
like making up these words or whatever and phrases or whatnot, but uh, it's sort of, you know, common vernacular, so it's kind of hard to think about, like, how are all these people talking before this stuff, you know, is uh, is around, right? Because Shakespeare is for lack of, you know, there's sort of a, he's more modern than, you know, as far as English goes, and, you know, Chaucer, the, the next best example, right? It's it's kind of, you know, f fully, fully bloomed as far as, you know, English just being like a, a thing or whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, here's it's at some point it's a math thing, right? Um, we got what 120,000 active words in English. If we want to count a bunch of whole archaic terms, we could be as generous and go all the way up to 200,000. But, um, fun fact uh, if you pull up the wiki page, uh, who invented which English terms? Uh, the first most ever is Chaucer, second most is Shakespeare, third most is John Florio. Each of them have over 2,000 words apiece that they single-handedly invented. And uh, Shakespeare and Florio are contemporaneous and are both part of this era. Chaucer's their predecessor by about 200 years, but um, Chaucer himself is very much acting like an early proto-Shakespeare being a poet laureate for the king, uh, being a scholar... Um, for the state um, he's helping build a nationality and a nationalism um, but what I want to point out is if they get 2,000 words apiece and there's what 200,000 words to go from I mean that's like 1% of the language which I know doesn't sound like much but there's been billions of people to speak English how can one person have a whole percent to themselves yeah, supposedly to the wiki, it says Florio contributed, yeah, about 1,100 to English. Chaucer apparently is 2,000, and Shakespeare apparently has just under 2,000. And so, that that's just a, an insane amount of contribution to the language. Like, once again, if you don't right. want to accept top-down control, this is still super centralized, hyper-focused around supposedly individuals and um i guess that supposedly is a nice little segue into what we're going to be talking about for a lot of this podcast not just today but further episodes talking about the shakespeare authorship question um i know a lot of you guys out there uh, may not be too up to date on shakespeare but uh Shakespeare in the last, I don't know, 100 years, and especially in the last 20, 30 years with the advent of the internet, there's a lot of people uh, talking about the doubtful possibility that someone from a blue-collar, lower-middle-class background could have the life experiences necessary to be the greatest author of all time by the age of 20-something. Um... It's possible that someone from those backgrounds could do it with the necessary life experiences, but from the actual biography of William Shakespeare of Stratford, uh, there's not a whole lot to go on to suggest that he could actually write about dozens of skills that not just write about those skills, but show expert level uh, knowledge of those skills like falconry, like sailing, 
like uh, being a soldier at war, uh, different kinds of medicine practices. Uh, Inner workings of the court dramas and, yeah, um, all sorts of, yeah, different philosophies clearly that pop up. And, you know, a, a fun thing to often point out is, yeah, tons of occult and esoteric references as well. And that absolutely. obviously begs the question, well, you got to be reading that somewhere, right? And, yeah, so uh, at, at some point, uh, where is some blue-collar guy out in the middle of Stratford, which wasn't a particularly hustling, bustling metropolitan town, cosmopolitan town. It was kind of backwards, um, even if it's not backwards. Where does some guy whose father is illiterate, whose mother is illiterate, where does he get access to all of this knowledge and presumably a short amount of time. If this stuff is so ever prevalent that it can be in places like Stratford, um, I would think that we'd see a whole lot more of these types and we'd honestly need some sort of explanation for how that happens. And I don't think we get that. Remember, printing press is only so old at this time. Uh, books are not very common. Uh, they're not easy to get out in Stratford. Yeah, if you're in the middle of London, sure, you can come buy some books. And if you have money, you can definitely buy them in store. Um, but someone like William Shakespeare of Stratford, out in the middle of Stratford, I mean... With the one will we have, <laughs> he doesn't leave anything. Yeah. Um, no book collection, yeah, you would think. Second best bed, uh, that's the best thing that he could... <laughs> the famous quote from... Um, Will Stratford's will is that he left his wife the second best bed. Um, not the first best, but the second best. Um, let's see. See, I've just got his basic life. Yeah, and it's very scant, obviously. And Although no, there's no attendance records for when he apparently went to school, even though people will agree he went to some nearby free school, supposedly. And you'll be able to hear, I, I feel like for all these other authors, they'll, feel, they'll have some sort of record for them going to school but yeah for for Shakespeare they can't seem to find or at least according to Wiki here anyway um and here's the thing is that um I mean if you're not an aristocrat there's not always a lot of great documentation and so any of these blue collar guys are going to be hard to be document uh do documented but that's not me standing in defense of Stratford what I want to point out is that uh, uh even this Though this Wikipedia says all, most scholars agree that he went to the school, not all scholars agree as to how long he was there, and just about none of them agree to what degree or value that education was worth. Uh, historically, up into the 1800s, it was considered that Shakespeare wasn't a classical scholar he had no idea what he was talking about when it came to mythology um latin greek uh he had basically just a schoolboy's understanding and yeah. then but yeah is able to combine all of those yeah elements to create new english words right right and so uh i think at some point in the 1800s that got sort of debunked and you had a uh sh shift of thought go from hey this guy doesn't know anything about classics to oh this guy clearly knows a bunch about classics and so he must have gotten a really great education up till whatever age he dropped out 
maybe it's age 10, maybe it's age 13, maybe it's up to 15. I think most people will say 13 or 14. Um, at any rate, I find it rather doubtful or dubious that he could get such a great Latin classical scholarship. And so nowadays you'll see professors say stupid things like uh, a grammar school kid got a better classical education than uh, undergraduates or even graduate students do now. And, uh, while it's completely possible that there were precocious uh, grammar school kids back then that were obsessed with the classics who could learn it very deeply, that's completely possible. Um, I doubt very much that places like Stratford were supremely capable of getting classical educations to people that were, for the most part, illiterate. Um, they can't speak or read English well enough. How in the heck are they going to speak and read Latin? Um, it seems a pretty dubious proposition. Uh, so, yeah, let's, let's move on. Because uh, I think the Shakespeare authorship question is a little bit of a... It's kind of endless, right? We're, where it's like, yeah, we find ourselves endlessly like poking, or at least, you know, yeah, poking holes in it or, you know, comparing different evidence or weighing it. And yeah, some where they give credence to some of the Shakespeare evidence and it's like, but they don't give, you know, they don't value the same evidence towards something else or whatever, right? Right. So that's where we're kind of throwing up our hands and sort of, you know, diving into ourselves and wondering where they make their conclusions from, right? If you've ever watched a, a Hitchcock movie, he always has a MacGuffin at the start of the movie. The MacGuffin's the thing that draws you into the mystery, draws you into the suspense, and keeps you going at first. But by the end of the movie, that thing has nothing to do with anything. And I think, honestly, that's what the Shakespeare authorship question is going to be for us. Um, because it is for sure the thing that draws us in. We want to talk about, look, this is the most important author of all time. And we don't even really know if we can say what we know about him is true or not. Um, that's a problem. But I think by the end of this, we're going to realize that this isn't really even just a discussion about one author or one authorship or one set of plays. This is hundreds of plays by dozens and dozens of authors over several decades that are all being put out by the same circle of minds over that time. And I think a lot of these circle of minds are family related, politically commercially related but I think a lot of them are also members of um, occult secret societies you got your Rosicrucians you got your Masons uh, the so-called School of Night that's supposedly led by Walter Raleigh which may just be a nice 19th century euphemistic title for Rosicrucian chapter um, and then you know there's other things like uh, just literally the state the secret service of the state Thomas Walsingham, uh, William Cecil, um, working for Queen Elizabeth. Um, let's see. There's other things that we probably should talk about first, though, before we go too deep into all the um, really intelligentsia names and any of that theory. Um, let's just talk about the authorship question in general. What is it? Well... A lot of people, including us, doubt that William Stratford, of Sh uh, William Shakespeare of Stratford, wrote all the plays that we get. Um, 
the more popular alternatives to the Stratford theory or the Stratfordian theory is that um, Francis Bacon is the real man behind Shakespeare, that William Shakespeare is a pen name. Um, that's the Baconian theory. That's one of the original alternatives and has always been ever prevalent and I think still slowly secretly growing. Um, you have the new favorite theory, the Oxfordian theory that Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, he's the one writing Shakespeare. Um, that he's using the pen name after a certain year when he goes destitute and is now getting a secret service pension to fully run and operate this. It may be a group of collaborating writers that he's in charge of. It may just be him in a back room. Um, there's not too much consensus over that. Um, that theory's got a lot of interesting points, got a lot of legs, and that's been around since the 20s. Um, sorry, the 1920s, so it's exactly 100 years old this year, I think. Uh, J. Thomas Looney put it out in 1922, I believe. Um, so I think that's appropriate, talking about it, 100 years old. Uh, let's see. There's other theories that are starting to pop up. Uh, you get Thomas North. Uh, Dennis McCarthy's been pushing that recently, and uh, what he's found is that there's this guy, Thomas North, nobody really gave much credit to. He was a translator of Plutarch. We always acknowledge that, and we know that Plutarch is translated by Thomas North, has been used a lot in Shakespeare. Well, Dennis McCarthy went and found a whole lot more stuff that Thomas North had written or translated that pops up in a lot of places in Shakespeare, including Hamlet's to be or not to be speech. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll talk about several reasons why that has not wholly convinced us and that uh, it's as much fun as the North theory is and as hot off the presses as it is. Um, it's no more convincing than the Baconian or Oxfordian theory, which all have convincing aspects, but none of them seem to be a centralizing 100%. Yeah, parsimonious, whole, yeah. yeah, great explanation for, you know, because, yeah, we get Francis Bacon being able to do the whole, you know, philosophical, scientific waning and, you know, cryptology stuff, but, yeah, we don't really get him doing some of the the love poetry and the, uh, you know, some of the even, you know, inner workings of a, Mac, you know, Macbeth drama, you know, some of that really human drama, right? Yeah, I can kind of get that lofty sense and kind of big macro sense from him, but not some of the, you know, the inner workings, or, right. you know, that like, micro like scale, little, you know? Little moments where, uh, yeah, like uh, Macduff's wife is um, starting to turn sour on Macduff because he left them, and uh, um, little, little moments like that, I think... Uh, come from a genuinely literary mind and uh, so your Oxfordians would argue, oh, well, it's because Oxford's doing all of it. And Well, as much as Oxford is maybe capable of that, and this is a tough discussion because we don't have a lot of um, early writings from Oxford to go on, um, we only have a scant amount of poems that are attributed to Oxford to really compare back to and it's much earlier in his career so it's not going to read as well. Um, I think, this is a little side note, but I think if we want to actually do internal evidence with Oxford, we have to go ahead and make a leap and say that Oxford is John Lilly and a large amount of Thomas Kidd, and if we do that, I think we can use those to 
go back and compare to Shakespeare, and I think we'll find a lot of that in there, which is why I'm a fan of the Oxfordian theory. But one thing it can't do is it can't explain why all that medical knowledge is in there, whereas the Baconian theory can. Um, the Baconian theory, once again, can't explain all this um, poetic love agenda, all this character drama, uh, literary stage drama. Uh, we know that he worked some court masks and he's indeed capable of doing dramas, but um, we're not just talking about capability here, we're talking about, you know, ostensibly the best ever. And so, uh, at some point, we're yeah, looking at... Yeah, it doesn't at, go, yeah, does do as much good to just replace William Shakespeare with Devere and be like, oh yeah, it's just this one dude, it's just this other dude writing everything the whole time, right? Because it still doesn't answer the whole question of, like, yeah, the, the, the the number the number game with all the the number of literally words that are able to be created right just doesn't justify it just kind of begs more people involved right we have we have uh, a bunch of lawyers saying Shakespeare had to be a lawyer you got a bunch of doctors saying Shakespeare had to be a doctor yeah uh, why can't it be yeah why can't he be all those things but it has to be multiple people right right uh, at so some point kind of um, Devere and Bacon are renaissance men and they are versed in multiple multiple fields and it's possible and even plausible to assume that Edward Devere does have some medical knowledge but there are lines in Shakespeare and I wish I had the exact quote on me but there are lines in Shakespeare I want to say it's the Tempest um, that literally talk about the circulation of blood, and this is bef printed before the invention of the circulation of blood. And uh, we can assume that Bacon is buddying up with Richard Harvey, who is, uh, or John Harvey, who is uh, in discovering this using the purple dye, which is part of the Tempest quote. Um, but there's no real explication for how Devere would know or not know that because Devere's supposed to be dead some decades before that discovery is made. Um, furthermore, Bacon, if he's the one writing it, it's still being printed in the folio two years before it's fully discovered and written in medical journals of the time. And so, um, at some point, like we, there's only a few people in all of England that could say that kind of thing. And, just Francis Bacon's one of them. Uh, Edward de Vere's not. Um, and here's the thing. We, we kind of stopped at those two, but there are plenty of other names that need to be considered. And uh, It's not just de Vere. It's not just Bacon. Uh, it's not just Thomas North. Uh, there are a lot of people that like the John Florio candidacy. Florio's one of the original translators of all, almost all the Italian Renaissance stuff to English. That's how he invented those 1150 words. Um, he was the tutor to Queen Anne, the wife of King James. He was a big time big shot. His dad was the tutor for a lot of noble aristocrats in the 1570s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, so presumably John Florio would have grown up with some of these folks. Oh, he's also, really, according to Wikipedia, he's also a personal friend of Giordano Bruno. And so he's a personal buddy of Giordano Bruno, and so presumably he is connected with uh, um, someone like Roger Manners, who had Giordano Bruno as a professor. And Roger Manners was uh, the Earl of Rutland, who was 
He was the nephew, or sorry, not nephew, he was the son-in-law of Philip Sidney. He married Sidney's daughter, Elizabeth Sidney. Um, and so, while we got Sidney up on the screen, kind of want to talk about this guy. Um, he's a sleeper candidate, right? And, yeah, uh, he's he's my. And at one point, to just yeah, before we even go into it, and that you're you're about to say it anyway, right? But that you know, because it's you're, you're talking about Bacon, obviously having some of that medical knowledge or being able to be one, yeah, who's actually privy to something like that, right? But you'll find that hey, but Oxford and Bacon like grew up together or something like that, or yeah, have very they, close ties. They both grow up at the Cecil House. Um, so to some yeah, uh, right. They don't and live so their that's entire childhoods there, but they both spend big chunks of their childhood at the Cecil House. That said, Oxford's about ten years ish, twelve years ish older than Bacon. Um, so it's almost like he's an uncle, big brother type character to Bacon. Um, but there was another guy that spent holidays and spent summers at the Cecil House. And that was Sir Philip Sidney. Uh, Philip Sidney's relationship with Edward de Vere is uh, up for discussion. What we do have documentation of is that when they're younger in the 70s, um, let's see, Oxford's um, five, six years older than Philip Sidney, um, that there is a super rivalry between them and that um, De Vere was always the literary creative genius, and then this new kind of hot upstart kid comes in, thinks he's even smarter. And, um, well, you know, there's argument for either way that uh, even if you think Edward De Vere's Shakespeare, Philip Sidney is really, really, really good at what he did. And so we have a lot of poetry from Philip Sidney. He is kind of the um, catalyst or the fire starter for this whole courtly poetry, courtly sonnets thing. There were poets before him writing some sonnets, writing courtly poetry, but Philip Sidney outpoured vast amounts of literary, um, you know, just vast amount of literary output with no real reason for doing it other than to be literary and he kind of set the agenda for that and had he not died well Philip Sidney might just be the best ever and so I think we have to kind of maybe ask is it possible that there's something related between Philip Sidney and William Shakespeare and well, as we go through the Shakespeare narrative I think we're gonna see an absurd amount is connected back to the circle or life or biography of Philip Sidney. Um, for instance, the Shakespeare folio, when that was printed, the most important thing ever in English printed, arguably, um, who and why was it printed for? Well, it was dedicated to the Earl of Pembroke and his brother. Well, that's Sidney's nephews. That's Philip and William Herbert. Why in the world would Shakespeare be writing that and dedicating that? And honestly, uh, what's the connection between Oxford or Bacon and the Herbert boys? I don't really quite understand. Um, and I think there's a good reason to talk about Mary Sidney's presence in the folio and in all the external metadata with it as well. It's I don't think it's just Philip, but... I think we'll find that 
Philip so influential before Shakespeare and during the time of Shakespeare that uh, he's just a large shadow that's cast and so we get this large shadow that's cast and then at some point we get this new guy filling it and uh, wouldn't you know he, he's as good or better than that shadow and uh, I think that there may be a reason to suspect that it is actually indeed partly Philip Sidney. I don't think that Philip Sidney is the singular hand behind Shakespeare. I do think it's a collective. Um, once again, as we listed, there's a whole bunch of different kinds of skills, expertise. There's various different kinds of languages being used to come up with these new words. Uh, there's tons of different angles of history and settings being used. There's all sorts of sources being used to come up with these lines and these scenes and plays and uh, I think more than anything like there's different tones and styles in these plays and it's not just a chronological or genre shift I think we have different hands syntax within, right yeah, yeah syntax diction uh, point of views uh, philosophical um, stances like within the same plays we'll get shifts of that and it's not I don't think just because old Willie Stratford was a genius and could put himself in the shoes of every character. While it is, you know, seems true for a lot of the plays, I don't think that that's 100% true for every play, and I think that's largely a consequence of having a lot of different really great minds working together to come up with scenes. Uh, so let's talk about that. Um, Let's see. So let's talk about the authorship question real quick. Um, we keep going off topic here, going I, I, down I, I, the I rabbit it, hole. It kind of does explain, though, that it's, you know, yeah, we think, obviously, people for a while have been pointing out that they're, yeah, we're not, it, the, the, the Shakespeare authorship question definitely extends past internet phenomenon, right? Or even just, you know, Wagnut, 1960s, 70s, conspiracy culture, books, whatever, right? We're talking like, you know, 1800s that people have been like, hey, maybe, you know, a lot of this, you know, a lot of this biography we're kind of given, yeah, doesn't really hold up and some of the sources are dubious and, uh, and yeah, once you start to take a look at people that, you know, that are well-traveled, uh, you know, like, you know, uh, Edward de Vere, right, that, you know, they hit half his biography is just how he gets to travel and, like, go all these different places and pick up all these different cultures and, and whatnot, and obviously Sidney's bio has, you know, he's the best, he's definitely the best uh, sonneteer after Shakespeare or whatever, right? Uh, yeah, too bad he dies young or whatever, you know, and so, uh, yeah, there's, you know, there's just a lot of well-educated people that, you know, for lack of better way of thinking about it they actually have the extra time to do all this and actually tinker about and you know have the paper and pen to actually you know scribble and cross out and write you know if anyone's actually done enough writing you'll be wasting tons of paper making stuff up or whatever right so Absolutely. uh yeah they just they seem to just have way more of the the disposable um income and time to be able to actually you know dedicate you know some of their uh or, yeah let alone dedicate their time but actually have yeah, the background to pull it off. Um. And uh, 
for you, for you folks out there that are like, well, they already jumped to all these aristocrats. Um, you know, I knew that the Shakespeare authorship question was bullcrap. I'm just going to listen to my professors. Um, you're welcome to do that. In fact, uh, I recommend take as many professors as you can. Ask them each who wrote Titus Andronicus, uh, which scenes. I don't think they're all going to give you the same answer. Because um, if you ask, say, Jonathan Bate, Jonathan Bate will tell you, oh, well, clearly big chunks of Titus are George Peel. And uh, whereas if you maybe ask... Uh, uh, Stanley Wells, Stanley Wells, he's, he's probably not going to stand for that. He's going to tell you that Shakespeare wrote all of Titus. Um, but you can ask some folks, and some folks will tell you Titus may have a bunch of Marlowe in it. And at some point, uh, what we have here is mainstream big-time professors of big-time universities that don't even have a consensus as to who's writing the Shakespeare that you're reading. You can read lines of Shakespeare, and mainstream authors will not agree as to who is or is not writing the lines you're reading. That's in Shakespeare. That's not in any external plays of the time. That's not added stuff later. I mean, that's just the Shakespeare folio that's printed. Um, Act 1, 2, 3 of Titus. Is that Shakespeare or not? Um, the three different parts of Henry VI get feeling of a ton of different writers uh, and if you've read your Marlowe it's kind of crazy how much some of Shakespeare sure does feel and look a lot like Marlowe um, and even in some places sound a lot like Marlowe like when Aaron the Moore is talking in Titus it sure does feel like Barabbas and uh, Jew of Malta so I don't really know how to recollect that or resolve that um, these other than well then hey you know oh well no they're just you know Marlowe's collaborating with Shakespeare maybe getting some pointers well then hey then you just got to be starting to Shakespeare's maybe hey if some of those good lines or whatever from somebody else you know we're still dealing with an authorship you know right. <laughs> kind of like, question, you, right even if we want to say that yeah Marlowe's collaborating with Shakespeare that Shakespeare's influenced by uh Marlowe like we we have to start expanding this beyond just one person that um, whether we're talking about Stratford, whether we're talking about Bacon, whether we're talking about Oxford, this is more than one person writing these plays. Um, and so let's and on to the uh, about all that misattributing or you know how people you were talking about authors or I'm sorry professors, uh, academia are arguing over you know attributing Shakespeare or even lines and other stuff or whatever right. But yeah, what about the whole Shakespeare apocrypha or about you know. Or stuff that has now been uh, re, you know, reclassified as oh no, that we said it was all that was Shakespeare for a while, but turns out we were wrong, and turns out it was this other guy or whatever, right? Um, you know, could go down some of that line. Absolutely, like um, you know, a lot of plays started to be printed in the later 1600s, uh, in the later part of the Restoration. And so when they're getting printed, they gotta sell these plays, and so they they're putting on authors, and some of the authors that they're putting on, say William Shakespeare, say Thomas Haywood, or say Thomas Decker, and um, historically we don't have any other printings with those authorship attributions, and so um, it's 
completely possible that these guys in the 1660s, 70s, and 80s are totally guessing when they're printing out these plays. And so we've had to, over time, just be like, well, it said Shakespeare when it was printed. And, but I don't know, now that we've read it a bunch, we don't really like classifying it as Shakespeare. It didn't get put with a folio. And so at some point, ultimately, what we have is sort of a canonization like the Bible. If it's not part of the Shakespeare folio, it's not Shakespeare. Um, so there's plays like Edward III that a lot of people want to say, well, this reads just like all of Shakespeare's history plays. But it's not in the folio, and so you won't have full consensus ever with people putting it into the canon. And funny enough, you say the Bible reference, because guess what's being... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, printed around the exact same time, right? Yeah, like Shakespeare's last play ever is, what, 1611, 1612, and that's when the King James Version of the Bible's being printed, and so, yeah, that goes back to, uh, I, th I guess, our original topic of discussion, talking about how language can be a sort of control mechanism, and so we have... Not, not just a religious text, but we have a secular text as well. Yeah. So we get the the profane and the the divine. We get we get both sides, the sacred and, and the mundane. Uh, we get our religious text with King James, then we get our secular text with Shakespeare. Um, the Bible tells us how to live spiritually and Shakespeare tells us how to live uh, publicly or politically or um, on a mundane level profanely whatever word we want to say Let's see. yeah that's crazy it's all happening at the same time it's wild so um, let's see I think we can talk a little bit about um uh, we'll get into the Henslow Diary. And so, yeah, I guess the Apocrypha is a good lead into sort of the Henslow Diary and things collected to it or connected to it is that we're still dealing with a, a, a historiography problem essentially with this whole thing, right? Is that who's sourcing better than somebody else, right? Because, yeah, you have all these people that are, you know, trying to attribute Shakespeare or maybe even somebody else or whatever, right? That's not the point, but the point is like, how are they coming to those conclusions and yeah, who's who's able to capture that time period better, some of those other forces and um, maybe because obviously people want to do the internal readings and compare the text or whatever, right? And that's super important. I think they're, they're, you can definitely point out to some of that stuff, right? Um, and, and I guess, it, yeah, like you're saying, like at some point, we are like forensic detectives. Like forensic historian, right? What, yeah. what methodologies can we do to be more or less certain than other methodologies with trying to dig into Shakespeare. Like, if we're trying to identify the writer of a play, what methodologies are better or worse than others? And so there's all sorts of internal readings that we can do. We can go into mathematical stylometrics with the aid of computer analysis to um, see how many times words are being used or how many times sentence constructions are being used. And, try to match them up with other texts from the, the period in time and maybe we can try to map out um, authorship identities doing that but um, at the end of the day if we're not great at programming or if uh, we're unaware of certain mathematical biases then that can skew our results and perhaps style metrics isn't what we need to do maybe 
needs to be some more just literary style internal readings and we can make tons of internal readings but uh, I feel like once you just have the right cast of characters because just that little fact that you mentioned earlier it's like here you get the folio who is it dedicated to this you know oh William Herbert third Earl of Pembroke well okay who's that well yeah it's Philip Sidney's nephews or whatever right and once like well yeah what is that connection there and then from boom yeah from Sydney you can get to you can get to Devere you can get to Bacon you can get to all these other guys that everyone else likes to talk about right but there's yeah there's just this little yeah what's What's up with this little here, you know? And then, of course, you just start pulling the thread, and then that's where you start getting all these other characters or whatever, right? So, Absolutely. Absolutely. We need to sort of, throughout this podcast, not just today's episode, but throughout this podcast, start to slowly map together all the different networks and connections between Philip Sidney, between, sorry, between Philip Sidney and Edward Devere, between... Philip Sidney and Francis Bacon. Uh, how much does Walter Raleigh play into this? Um, I th think it's pretty fair to say that this is being state-run through William Cecil. Um, these are all basically his extended adopted family, foster family. Um, it's being run through Francis Walsingham, uh, which, by the way, if we want go back to Philip Sidney for a second, I just want people to know this. Uh, who was Philip Sidney's wife? Uh, was it Francis Francis Walsingham? Oh, who is she? Well, her dad is the head of the Secret Service, which is basically their FBI slash CIA. Um, he's the most or second most powerful man in England at the time. Um, if he's second most, it's only to William Cecil, whose daughter married Edward de Vere. His daughter married Edward Devere. No, his daughter married Philip Sidney. Oh, and then, okay, say so that other part about Devere. Uh, William Cecil's daughter, and so Francis oh, Walsingham's okay. head of the Secret Service. William Cecil is the Secretary of State. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Um, but here's where it gets fun. Before Philip Sidney married Francis Walsingham, he was actually engaged to another girl. Before that, do you know who he was engaged to? William Cecil's daughter, Anne Cecil, the girl that ends up marrying Edward Devere. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, which, by the way, Devere and Sydney are supposed to be big-time rivals up through their, you know, Sydney's teenage years, Devere's early 20s in the, in the 1970s, all the way up to maybe Sydney's death, Oxford's death. Um, but here's the other thing, is that... Uh, Philip Sidney, I don't think, was in love with Anne Cecil or Francis Walsingham. Uh, Philip Sidney's famously in love with a different lady. So much so that he wrote a famous set of sonnets over her. It's the most famous set of sonnets outside of Shakespeare's. It's called Astrophil and Estella. So, if you go to Astrophil and Estella, it'll tell you all about... Oh, yeah, okay. Lady, Lady Rich. Rich. Who is Lady Rich? Well, it's a lady named Penelope Rich, but that's not her real name. That's her married name. Her maiden name, her real maiden name, is Penelope Devereux. Her brother is the Earl of Essex, who carries out the famous Essex Rebellion in 1603 and gets his head cut off. Um, sorry, 1601 gets his head cut off. Um, but Penelope Devereux is famously... 
in love with Sydney and vice versa. You will hear a lot of Oxfordians out there argue that Devere is in love with Penelope Devereaux and that maybe even she had his kid or uh, he got Henry Rosley to sleep with her and have a kid for him or that uh, they had a kid and gave it to Henry Rosley. You, you hear a lot of different various versions but the point being that almost all of that Oxfordian reading of the connection between Devereux and Oxford are from Shakespeare poems and I might argue that that's coming from Sydney and not Oxford because mm. um, Sydney's the one that's always been in love with Devereux um, when Walter Devereux died um, Walter Devereux's Penelope and Robert's dead when he died he was Lord Governor of Ireland and he was probably murdered um, probably murdered by Sydney's uncle Robert Dudley um, but when he died he had one wish he's like, I'm dying my only wish is that Philip Sydney marries my daughter and uh, didn't happen <laughs> did not happen maybe that's why he got killed I don't know um, but yeah that's the other thing Philip Sydney's uncle is this dude named Robert Dudley who's arguably the third most powerful man in England. He was the Queen's favorite and probably the closest to ever marrying Elizabeth for real, at least closest Englishman to doing that. Um, and so, yeah, Sydney's just unbelievably ensconced in all of this. Um, and here's the thing. It's like he was a big-time poet. He was a big-time... Uh, writer in general, he wrote a lot of prose. The greatest Elizabethan sonneteer after Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but not only that, he did a lot of pageantry and masks. Um, apparently, he was an incredible like special effects and stage designer as well. Mm. And at some point, it's like the, this man sounds like Steven Spielberg had a baby with William Shakespeare, who had a billion had a baby with John Keats and William Wordsworth and. Um, so, yeah, not to hype him up too much or pull a Baconian or Oxfordian, but I think that Philip Sidney is equal the mind of Bacon or Oxford, and, um, the only restriction to him being Shakespeare is that he's supposed to have died in 1586, but let us remember that he is the most connected man in all of England, and if he wants to have his death faked or... Rather, if his father-in-law wants to have his death fake, it'll happen. And uh, I think there's plenty of reason to believe that, and I think there's plenty of evidence for how it maybe could have happened. Uh, we won't go too far into that today. But, um, yeah. Yeah, it's just, but yeah, going into it, because when you start rattling off these names, and yeah, you're trying, I'm try, you're trying to you know, look at, we've you know, destroyed our, I think anybody on Wikipedia will do this, right? But it's just like, Look at all these people that, you know, all these bigwood people connected to writing Shakespeare, you know, well, you know, for all intended purposes, better well-documented, I guess, or whatever, right? Yeah, absolutely. As far as their movements and stuff, absolutely. I guess it could depend, you know, we could argue how much of that is doctored or whatever, right? Um, but, yeah, it's still just, yeah, it's just, you start to connect and, you know, and, yeah, there's Shakespeare sort of in the middle, not, yeah, just... On an island. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, but not at the same time, right? Just like this folio thing, just, you know, just like... The internal readings with all the other evidence we've talked about with people with different, uh, you know, uh, jobs or, you know. Uh, and so, uh, and what we've like talked a lot about is going beyond Stratford and 
not just going beyond Stratford, but going beyond a solo author theory, uh, going beyond just the names that have been presented, uh, the popular names that have been presented, because uh, it seems to us that a lot of the popular names have good reason to be candidates and probably are present in some of the folio. Um, you get names like Roger Manners, William Stanley, uh, Henry Rosley, uh, Robert Devereux, Walter Raleigh, um, John Florio, John Dunn, Edward Dyer, Folk Greville, um, William Stanley's brother, Fernando Gabriel Stanley, Harvey. Uh, Gabriel Harvey, Edmund Spencer, um, and so now we're starting to go into names that I don't know if these are real people or not. I don't know if Gabriel Harvey's a real guy. I don't know if Edmund Spencer's a real guy. I feel pretty sure that the rest of those people are real people. Um, they're too documented not to be. They're too rich not to be. They're too uh, aristocratic, honestly. And I guess this kind of goes into the sort of uh, post-Stratfordian thing, right? It's like, yes, we're done looking at Stratford or even just sort of like, oh, Hulk. So, yep, it's all Marlowe, it's all Oxford, it's all Bacon or whatever, right? Because we're going, because you talked about some of the lawyers, because a lot of these guys are, they're well-read, they're well-traveled, they're well-cultured, they're well-connected. Um, and uh, not only that, but how many of these uh, eventually you'll be able to show with even someone like Marlowe, I, I think it was maybe Marlowe I'm thinking of, but uh, even with someone like him, they actually have jobs like literally involved with language, you know, involved with the legal system, involved with the carriers or whatever that you talked about, yeah. right? Uh, dudes that are literally all involved around doing tons of writing or whatever, right? Where, uh, yeah, uh, so you're or, thinking or of Marlowe's roommate, Thomas Kidd. Thomas Kidd's oh, okay. dad is supposed to have been a Scrivener. Uh, Anthony Monday, who uh, is a writer at this time, his dad's supposed to have been a Scrivener, and he's supposed to have been a Scrivener. Oh, um, and that sort of leads me into uh, my next point, is that, yeah, we've mentioned... Uh, or Edward Devere, we've mentioned Francis Bacon, we've mentioned Philip Sidney, uh, I mentioned all those other guys that are part of, that we think are part of it, but at the end of the day, those are all just aristocratic names that we don't have a lot of writings from, and we have to use a bunch of external evidence to try and guess that they're the people doing this. But that's actually a second step. We have to do a first step before we even get there. We have, to not, we have to not only identify Shakespeare, we have to identify dozens of other authors that have scanty, shoddy biography. It's not just Shakespeare. Uh, I want to quote Stephanie Hughes Hopkins for a second. Um, if you can find that tab. Yeah, I have it up here. Um. And once you start talking, I'll find it. I have her essay pulled up. And this essay came out in recently or? Uh, 2005. Okay, so, so yeah. So she's somewhat recent. She, I think she's still around with us. If not, she's just recently gone. She was getting old. Is getting old. I hope she's still around. Um, let's see. This is beyond Shakespeare expanding the authorship theory. And if we go to the bottom of page one, um, she's got a quote here that says, because too many candidates have accumulated, the discourse has become stuck at a point we should have passed long ago. So she's talking about the Shakespeare authorship theory. She's saying, like, we have something like, I think when she's writing, there's something like 40-something. But, I mean, now in 2022, there's, like, literally 84, 83 candidates. Um, 
And so since we have 80-something candidates, we're stuck. There's no way to sort of get a huge favorite over the rest. And I would include Stratford in that. Like, I don't... I think even his mainstream appeal is is going away as soon as anybody hears this authorship theory. There's already a virus planted in their brain because as soon as you doubt Stratford, it's hard to keep that house of cards up. Um, and so she says, too much time and energy is being spent arguing which one or ones wrote the Shakespeare canon. Since it seems impossible at this point to reduce the size of this group to which new names are being added all the time, so that group being Shakespeare authorship candidates, um, the better path may be to open up the question in a way that will admit all of them. We need to stop focusing on the candidacy of Shakespeare himself, stop fighting over who should or should not be eliminated, and embrace a more comprehensive authorship thesis, one that includes all the writers of the period and all the works. And at the end of the day, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to correctly attribute and understand the writing process behind all these texts. So there's a bunch of stuff, a bunch of stuff, not just Shakespeare. Like Thomas Kidd, he's very poorly documented. Uh, he's supposed to have been a prolific playwright. Uh, ben Johnson calls Thomas Kidd uh, sporting. Thomas Decker calls him industrious. And yet we have one play. We have one play by Kidd, The Spanish Tragedy. There are other people that will argue, oh no, he wrote Solomon and Perseta, or he wrote Ferrum, or um, uh, you'll, you'll see arguments that, oh, he, he wrote Arden. Um, but. <laughs> yeah, see, look, dude, she's kind of leaning out here, too, because, because rest assured, we're not looking for more than one Shakespeare, but we are looking for other characters in his story. If we wish to find Shakespeare, we first must seek him among his fellows. The actors, patrons, publishers, and most important, the other writers who shared in the creation, not just of all the Shakespeare can, but of all English Renaissance literature. If Shakespeare were the only authorship problem of the period, scholars would have found the solution long ago. And, uh, where was he, where did you say, um, the authorship question is not just about Shakespeare. It's about Shakespeare plus Bacon, plus Sidney, plus Mary Sidney, plus Marlowe, plus Johnson, plus Green, plus Watson, plus... Uh, Gascoigne, he's Gascoigne. from the 70s uh, Edwards, plus a whole set of the names that most readers have never even heard of which is sort of, yeah, what of course, like, I don't even know how much general English London, right. or, you know, and, people even get talk about Honestly, stuff, she, um, one of my qualms with this essay is that she's throwing names like Gascoigne and Watson in there, and it's like we don't even need to really talk about Gascoigne and Watson, because they're from the 70s and 80s, they predate Shakespeare, they may have been around for Oxford, and I think that's why she's dropping their names is because it connects Oxford back to the literary uh, establishment of the 60s and 70s that are putting out stuff. And uh, Gascoigne's actually writing for Lester's Men, who's Sidney's uncle, uh, Robert Dudley, and uh, there may be some connection there. Um, but the point being that there are actually dozens and dozens of names that she's not listing here that yeah. are from the exact time of Shakespeare. And... Uh, almost all of them are in that Henslow diary um, and so we get and honestly uh, there's ones that aren't in the Henslow diary that just predate the diary that are the really famous ones Thomas Kidd, Christopher Marlowe Robert and Green, just George Peel bring it to speed, what's the Henslow diary it's just like a good 
or if maybe one of the only pieces of contemporary actual archival evidence they have during this time period. Yeah, so you'd think we have a bunch of stuff written down on pen and paper, and that's how we're getting all this information about Shakespeare, but ironically, um, no, the only real great document that we have that writes a bunch of stuff about who wrote what from the era uh, is a thing called Philip Henslow's Diary. He was a theater manager. He managed uh, the Rose Theater and uh, helped run or manage or own the Admiral's Men and also had relationships with other uh, uh, playing companies like Lord Strange's Men, Sussex's Men, Chamberlain's Men, uh, Queen's Men. Um, and he wrote down and for the first several years of his theater enterprise he took down the names of the plays that they'd show how much they would make uh, the dates that they would play them and he'd write if they were new and then at some point he quit taking that down as documentation and he started just writing down as documentation how much he was loaning or paying his playwrights and for what they're writing it over there's also stuff like paying his actors and uh, buying costumes and sets but for our discussion we're most interested in the inclusion of the names of writers in that diary and what plays they were writing and uh, there are a bunch of big names that we know of today that we think of as pretty big like we really like John Webster if you're a fan of Shakespeare you should probably like John Webster uh, if you're a fan of Shakespeare you should probably like Ben Johnson John Marston Decker Thomas Decker Michael Drayton George Marston. Chapman Thomas Middleton um, and here's the thing is that uh, this Wikipedia articles kind of bullcrap on us uh, because Robert Greene is never mentioned by name in the diary Oh, really? Robert Greene is never once mentioned by name. Um, his play title is mentioned. So Friar oh. Bacon and Friar Bungie is mentioned. Orlando is mentioned. And we know that those are, we think that those are Robert Greene plays. So you also see people say that Thomas Nash is mentioned. Thomas Nash isn't actually mentioned in Henslow Diary, except for asterisk next to that there's a guy named Collier in the 1700s that was studying the diary and he tried to forge some stuff into the diary one of the things that he got caught trying to forge into the diary was Thomas Nash's name but Thomas Nash is never once mentioned in Henslow's diary why is Thomas Nash not mentioned he's supposed to be one of the big-time writers of the era um, why is Shakespeare not mentioned or why for is, that matter Richard Burbage um, yeah, Richard Burbage is supposed to be the big-time actor of the time, but uh, Richard Burbage is supposedly in a different play company, so he's supposedly with the Chamberlainsmen, so that's why he won't be mentioned. Oh, and then you also get the forgeries, of course, and the, yeah, so you're, there's missing contemporary dudes, uh, big-name big dudes like Nash you mentioned, but there's also, even later, there's also apparently forgeries in this thing as well, which is, yeah, it's yeah, bad news. Yeah, <laughs> red flag for sure. And, uh... So I, I think uh, um, at some point, though, there's it's fine that Robert Greene's not mentioned in Henslow because Robert Greene's supposed to be dead by 1592 anyway. Uh, it's fine that Marlowe's not mentioned in Henslow because Marlowe's supposed to be dead by 1593. It's fine that Thomas Kidd's not mentioned. Thomas Kidd's supposed to be dead by 1594. Um, it's totally explicit, explicit, explicable 
that John Lilly's not mentioned. He's retired from the theater after 1591, it seems like. Uh, totally makes sense that uh, none of those guys are mentioned. The only one that's not mentioned that's from that time is George Peel. And, um, George Peel's biography and attributions also may be under question, though. Um, at the end of the day, the playwrights that we do know that were around around the year 1600 that are really famous, that are at the height of the, the theater of English Renaissance, every one of those guys that we know of is named in the Henslow Diary, except Shakespeare. And so at some point, I have this image of 20-something incredible playwrights all working for this one guy, and then... The other company, they just got one. They don't need anything. They just got Shakespeare. <laughs> um, which, sure, Shakespeare's that great, fine. But even the modern historians or the up-to-date mainstream narrative is that Shakespeare only wrote one or two plays a year. How in the heck is this going to be the most popular, best, most successful playing company if they only have one play a year? How are, what other plays are they running? Because Hinslow changed the play every night, just about. Um, what is the other company doing? How are they running that? Are they just running Hamlet for six months until he comes out with his new play and then run that for six or eight months? No. Yeah, I've kind of lamented to you that it's like, yeah, it sucks we don't have you know, some rotten tomatoes of the time or anybody else, anybody been like, oh yeah, I went and saw Shakespeare today, went and saw Macbeth, and yeah, they, the, the, the blood, you know, uh, reenactment was really cool, or, you know, whatever, you know, anything to kind of get our hands on other people viewing this stuff, and yeah, Hensler's Diaries sort of the best thing is a ticket booth office right. that you can kind of get to, right? Absolutely. Yeah, because everyone, yeah, where are the tickets are, oh, I saved and my stub for, you know, for Titus Andronicus. I mean, we got these it, right? days, like, if you're gonna go see Avatar in 3D IMAX 2000, you're going to go see it at the biggest Cinemax and you're going to pay the $25 ticket and you're going to sit in the giant Lazy Boy recliner chairs on the you know 40,000 square foot screen and that's how you're going to watch it. But if you're going to see the art house drama about the uh, lesbian immigrant that uh, got cancer and died, like you're going to go see that at the cool hipster, you know, theater that was built in 1952 and like at the end of the day like the venue kind of is part of the thing that you're seeing and I don't think that they would have been unaware of that phenomenon I think they would have totally played on that phenomenon and so what plays you're getting at the Rose with Philip Henslow's group over here I think is, yeah, it's going to be different than what you get at the Globe, and it's going to be different than what you get at Blackfires, which is going to be different than what you get at the theater. Um, but ultimately, I don't see why those things have to be mutually exclusive competing entities or mutually exclusive um, unaffiliated entities. I would expect that these are all somewhat very affiliated entities, and I would guess that it's a monopolized control at some point. I don't, I don't think that it's a responsible assumption to say that Philip Henslow is the last rung on the ladder. Um, especially when all these companies have the name of aristocratic dudes on it. Um, I don't see what the point of Lester's company being called Lester's company is if Lester doesn't have a little bit of say over it. Yeah. <laughs> um, same with Oxford's men or Chamberlain's men or King's or Queen's men. 
that said, just because it says Lester's men doesn't mean that Lester's writing and directing all the plays either. Uh, let's see. But yeah, so yeah, obviously, I think Hindu's Diary, one of these big focal points for historiography, how can we try to go about proving what what we think we know or what are or picking apart or critiquing other people's um, assertions or you know draws from this information too or whatever right and mm, just I, you know trying to get our yeah you know, our hands on any you know the best interpretation for any of this stuff and, and I think what we're gonna have to do is just cross examine vast amounts of metadata uh, we're gonna be looking at charts and charts and charts and we'll have charts of all the people that get murdered in the Shakespeare era. We're going to have charts of uh, all the people who have multiple relations back to the Queen. We can have charts of uh, um, which plays feel like they have multiple, multiple hands and which plays feel like they don't. Uh, no, yeah. We, we can have charts and charts and charts and charts and charts on charts. Um, and at some point, uh, it won't just be a single thing, oh, we just need to do this and we'll have it. Um, but there are some things that I think we can do or you guys can do if you, uh, you want to join in on the fun. Uh, we need to start identifying, and this is if you're willing to go along with our theory, but I think we need to start identifying which hands in Henslow are in the Shakespeare canon and which hands and Henslow are in the Shakespeare Apocrypha and which hands and Henslow are in all the external plays some of which have been attributed to the hands and Henslow but um, um, there are a bunch of big names in Henslow we got names like Thomas Haywood Ben Johnson George Chapman um, Thomas Decker like these guys honestly are as good as Shakespeare. Um, I don't care what all these hoity-toity professors want to say. These guys are just as good as Shakespeare. Like, at some point this is an argument of Scorsese versus Kubrick or Spielberg versus Fincher. Like, these are all incredibly adept people. I, I get it if you're not a Spielberg fan. I get it if you're not a Fincher fan. Um, but these are people that are really ensconced in what they do and they're all in a small circle together um, they work and interact with each other all the time so I think ultimately what we have to do is sort of find the names in the Henslow diary connect them back to the text and then maybe start to pick out which of those are pen names or front men for aristocrats behind the curtain and maybe we can even start to one-to-one -to -one those pen names if possible. Um, but I don't think it'll be easy because I think we'll have tons of aristocrats that are using multiple pen names. I think there will be a fair amount of pen names that are multiple people writing together. Like I feel that way about Thomas Kidd uh, in a large part because um, I don't think that Devere is the only one writing Thomas Kidd, though I do think Devere is one of the big time authors in Thomas Kidd um, and so that will be kind of difficult to parse through and sometimes it'll be explicable like oh this aristocrat had this pen name but then had to get rid of it at this date and then picked up a new pen name at this date 
Um, but it won't, I don't think, will always be that clean. I think we'll have plenty of cases where an aristocrat will have a pen name at the same time as another pen name, but maybe one pen name's for this medium or genre, and this pen name's for another medium or genre or style. Um, and it'll get hairy, too, because if these guys are writing in the same room together, their stuff might start to sound alike. So it's hard to tell if Thomas Nash and Robert Greene are indeed different people or the same person. Um, it's hard to tell if just how much of Chris Marlowe is or isn't Thomas Nash, um, which I'm very certain that Thomas Nash is all over Chris Marlowe, but just how much of it is Marlowe and which is Nash. The two do start to blend together. It's not as easy and just saying, ha, this is the Marlowe section, this is the Nash section. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, man, it's gonna be wild. But I do think we have, yeah, multiple authors going on. Uh, it's not just that. It's not just that Edward Devere is writing eighty different authors' worth of literature and outpouring one million pages of literature. Like we do have to have multiple, multiple, multiple authors. But I do think what we're gonna find is that it's kind of a centralized sort of intelligence operation coming out of a tight-knit group of aristocrats that have tons of political governmental influence, tons of commercial influence, and tons of secret society, uh, quasi-religious, uh, quasi-occult backing. Yeah, and I think, uh, yeah, just just starting to dive into, like, any one of these names, and you'll start to kind of find, uh, yeah, I think it'll just enrich in your whole understanding of that time period, you know, getting to, you know, connect a lot of these, these moving parts, uh, yeah, not even alone, just doing all these, uh, inter-reading, or the internal readings of the plays, and trying to do all that, you know, sort of comparison, right, but yeah, just looking like, at some of these biographies, hey, and go, go, to, go to Edmund Spencer, um, like, watch how you can wiki you rabbit hole this uh <laughs> let's see uh scroll down let's see oh we've already got william cecil on here uh walter raleigh already got walter raleigh i was gonna have you click uh let's see let's see if it talked about when he dedicates his stuff you got ben to johnson down here yep got ben johnson down there uh keep going Uh, keep going. We're gonna try and see where he dedicates some of Here's his. The fairy queen. Spencerian stanza. So it's a certain combination of rhyme scheme and metric setup. Oh, uh, Spencer was called the poet's poet by Charles Lamb, admired by all these other dudes, but. Uh, uh, we'll be seeing Charles Lamb's name over and over again. He's sort of the um, the Romantic era scholar on Shakespeare's era. So he's from the same time as Keats and Wordsworth and that crowd. Uh, but he's obsessed with Shakespeare and contemporaries of Shakespeare. Uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember which play it is or which poem it is, but uh, one of these long famous uh, poems he he dedicates to Sir Philip Sidney yeah as you fell a pastor elegy upon the death of the most noble and valorous knight Sir Philip Sidney 
Um, maybe it's Colin Clouts. That's what it is. But yeah, he dedicates to Sydney. He's supposedly in Ireland uh, working for Walter Raleigh. Uh, but do you know who's running Ireland at that time? It's I Phil saw it. Philip Sidney's dad. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's really easy to do this. Yeah, because I saw they were mentioned, and apparently him saying something about not wanting to teach kids in Ireland. Spencer warned of the dangers that allowing, oops, that allowing the education of children in the Irish language would bring, so that the speech being Irish at heart must need be Irish, for out of the abundance of the heart the tongue speaketh. I don't know what he means there, but... So, they're saying that uh, your brain or your emotions are wired to your language, and that goes oh, into the start of this whole discussion. Yeah. Um, here's the thing, is Stephanie Hopkins Hughes, in the same essay that we've been reading about, she calls Edmund Spencer out. She doesn't think Edmund Spencer's a real guy. Um, and if you actually uh, read some more Stephanie Hopkins Hughes essays, she'll tell you that she thinks Edmund Spencer is a pen name of Francis Bacon, um, but she will also say that De Vere's get editorial sort of familiarity with Edmund Spencer, and De Vere is the e-editor that helps edit the Shepherd's calendar, um, but whoever Edmund Spencer is, there's certainly some direct connection back to all these names that are in Shakespeare, and Edmund Spencer is whoever the heck he is uh, just he's the great epic poet of English like he's the Virgil he's the, the Homer of English and uh, we don't even know where this guy died or how this guy died like, yeah I noticed on, on the scene just, and then stops. he's gone yeah, yeah there's nothing about yeah later on uh, yeah. it just stops no nobody will, nobody knows uh, he's just there and he's gone and we're gonna see that happen over and over again with these uh, folks and uh John Lilly's the same way. He's there and then he's just gone. Thomas Nash, he's there and he literally vanishes. Hmm, bizarre. And so, yeah, at some point, it's these people are forgotten about, and um, at some point, they're only publication names. They're names that are only seen and used in publications. Uh, but the whole point I wanted to bring up with Edmund Spencer was that one of his famous epic poems he dedicates to one of the Spencer sisters, and I was just going to show you how easily you can, through the Spencer sisters, connect a bunch of His different sisters famous. Or someone else's sister. No, there's it's spelled differently. It's spelled with a, a C. Okay, okay. Uh, but supposedly he's distantly related to them, but they are aristocrats. He is not. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so it always rang a little hollow for me. It didn't seem like he was actually a, a Spencer but those Spencers are part of the dispenser family uh, who's 800 900 year old English family who had members like I don't know, Princess Diana she was a Spencer um, but one of those Spencer sisters is married to a man named Ferdinando Stanley and uh, Ferdinando Stanley is another guy that I would like to somehow start to dig up and research because uh, his brother William's always been sort of one of the secondary favorites for authorship candidacy. But it seems to me that Ferdinando Stanley is. Fifth Earl of Derby? Equal, if not better. And so, um, 
he would he's often called Lord Strange. That was his title for most of his life. Um, Lord Strange was Lord Strange. So you'll see Strange in his early years is one of Lord Strange's men. Uh, was an acting troupe. There you go, Alice Spencer. Um, Poet Edmund Spencer, representer in Amerilis. Colin Clouts. It was Colin Clouts. Okay. Oh, in his eclogue, Colin. Clouts. And so uh, her and her sisters are all represented in Colin's Clout and dedicated to in Colin's Clout. Uh, but Colin's Clout is actually a reprisal of one of the original English epic poems from the medieval times. Oh, his death was mysterious. <laughs> a few months after a Hasketh affair, he was suddenly taken ill. Violent sickness. He said he'd been poisoned by the Jesuits. So, yeah, we have a super sketchy thing. But here's the thing. This death is happening right on the back of Thomas Kidd and Christopher Marlowe supposedly dying. Well, they supposedly also work for Lord Strange's men. He's Lord Strange. So Marlowe and Kidd worked for this guy. Right after they die, he dies. It all seems a little... And he was also apparently a patron of Green? Or is that... That's what it claims right um, That's what it claims. It's, at some point, we just know that all the plays that we attribute to Marlowe and Green uh, are being played by Lord Strange's men in the late 80s, early 90s. It's, some point as far as I'm willing to say but um, yeah to wrap it up because yeah we're, 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 we're falling down this aristocratic rabbit hole but yeah, yeah the, but yeah obviously we've got a huge cast of characters and we're gonna be spending time just going down you know we could just spend one whole night you know just on Philip Sidney alone or yeah you know, God who knows how long on Francis Bacon or that, the other people that's like, like hopefully the the plan to like sort of focus an episode over why this person is important to the story, what kind of roles they play, what are the odds that they're one of the main hands, um, not just in Shakespeare, but in any of this dramatic or poetic literature. Um, and, you know, at some point, maybe this spirals into talking about government and philosophical tracks and religious stuff, but um, for our right. intents and purposes, we're focusing on literature, the theater, and um, poetry and uh, I think the two kind of complement each other and that's going to be sort of our running theme here is trying to dig into the truth of history by digging into the art and literature of the time yeah and maybe using although I hate you brought it up that uh, I, I like that Nullius in Verba quote the Latin quote about uh, on no one's word right and it's that sort of thinking about yeah doing all the own research for yourself and not uh, being beholden to any sort of particular uh, you know line of reasoning hopefully we're not being we're obviously we have a bias and you're right but we're trying to be and yeah, we're trying to do diligence here and try to look as many names as possible you know instead of just kind of writing it off as so easily but to show that maybe our our line of reasoning is not even novel right that you know we've got some bigger names sort of on our side maybe yeah. yeah maybe if they didn't have it fully articulated as maybe we do now in a sense right but yeah we've got a couple of people that um have shown you know they're writing way before we are that are literally kind of saying the exact same thing that we are that maybe have a little more clout to this than yeah give us credit for right it's, it's not just us it's uh the best writers ever mark twain uh walt whitman uh 
Nathaniel Hawthorne, Charles Dickens, Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, Friedrich Nietzsche. I mean, it's literally a who's who of just the most important influential thinkers and literary writers of Western culture. Um, not that that makes it right, but it just should show you that it's not just for lunatics. This isn't just for nutcases who huff paint out of brown bags. Like, this is for people that are obsessed with reading. This is for people that don't just read because uh, they have to in school. This is for people that read it over and over again because there's something inside the text digging into their brain. Um, so yeah, just wanted to uh, say don't feel bad if you're positioned on the same side as those people. And if you're positioned on the opposite side or not on their side, that's okay too. There's plenty of other thinkers that probably don't think this. Uh, and there may be a lot of thinkers back then that didn't have an opinion either way that might have an opinion now because there's a lot more information on the subject. Um, and so, once again, like this is uh, this is not a new thing. It, we're going to pull out some quotes from plays from the year 1598. It shows people in 1598 were making bizarre, enigmatic Shakespeare riddles and references that suggest that they didn't even know who the, who it was and that there was maybe sort of a concurrent game as to trying to guess who the heck Shakespeare is um, and uh, you know we maybe don't have an exact analog for that these days but we have tons of musicians uh, entertainers that use pen names stage names uh, we do have like I don't know the band gorillas like if you've ever watched a gorillas music video None of those characters are real characters. They have musicians, studio musicians playing that, and the studio musicians aren't even the writers of the band. The writers of the band are just producers that hire out studio musicians. And so, while that may not be the exact model for Shakespeare, this is sort of just a nice precedent to show you that we can have art, literature, entertainment, and propaganda all wrapped into one thing and they can come from multiple different levels and that yeah, there's enough precedence for sure it doesn't have to be from a singular mind um, so I think that's it guys uh, thanks for listening I uh, hope y'all enjoyed uh, this yeah. will get more cohesive and focused as we go on so. yeah y'all got a lot of homework out there if, if, if any if there's any big takeaway you should, if you know if you're new to the Shakespeare yeah, just dive in. question go, it's just go like, look up geez. one of these names and start there's so many dudes to try to like figure out and it's just and then it's yeah it's not just Shakespeare by himself just you know writing out the whole English you know destiny or whatever at that time whatever right I'm just gonna write you know it's just there's so many other people involved and so many other moving influences you know between of course like you know the geopolitical stuff because yeah this is the, the the time period that the english empire is forming and there's a bunch of stuff going on with the of course i'm looking to the whole piracy angle right and how there's a sort of big play of you know the, the maritime right. control right and of course the king james bible being published and like, how much while, of that's while, involved while we still got philip up here uh just a, another fun fact about philip is that he's supposedly when he dies he's fighting in the battle of zutphen and they're standing up for Protestant religion in, in some forms and fashions, though that's not the explicit reason they're fighting. But he's supposed to be a champion of Protestantism, but wouldn't you know Philip's name Philip because he's named after his godfather. His godfather is the king of Spain. 
Philip II, who is very much Catholic. And uh, so Philip Sidney is unbelievably connected, and it's not just Philip Sidney. There are a lot of these guys in the same class as Philip Sidney is. They're not just high ups in England in some little rich neighborhood. These are people that are incredibly connected through the different courts of Europe, courts of France, uh, the courts of um, um, Milan, the uh, merchants uh, and the commercial class of Venice. You get uh, the papal regime in Rome. You have Spain. You have the Netherlands. You have various different kingdoms and provinces and the German Holy Roman Empire. All these people are all super interrelated. I mean, and they have been since Rome and before. So, um, this, this shouldn't be crazy or shocking, but we just do have to keep that in mind that as much as these guys are creating the English language, they're interacting with non-English cultures, and that's part of how this English is being codified in the first place. So I'll, yeah. I'll leave it there. Yeah, good wrap-up. We'll leave it there. And, uh, yeah, hopefully uh, everyone check back in for the next installment. And, yeah, Nulius and Verbo, take no one's word. Uh, peace out.